Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Eric Bowman, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. I am draped, however. So. <laughs> What's that? I am draped. Yeah. I have clothes on. Thank you. Thank you for that. Be clear about that. Yeah. Thank you for not misunderstanding the purpose of the interview. <laughs> so, you know, I am embarrassed to admit I am a new fan of yours. And that's the beauty of the internet. There, are, it amazes me how many artists there are out there that I am unaware of that of your caliber. And uh, I was, I've been playing air painting a lot with my students, and uh, we've just been scouring Instagram for landscape painters. And one of my students is like, "Have you heard of Eric Bowman?" And I okay. hadn't. And then uh, I looked you up and was just floored. I mean, your work is off the well, charts. That's awfully nice to say. The, the scary thing about that is that a lot of embarrassing uh, older paintings pop up when you do a search. And I wish I wish I could reel those in and just get rid of them, but you can't, you know? They're oh, out there for I know. I, I hate Google searching myself for that reason. There's so much garbage oh. out there. So much. But... <laughs> I, doubt, I doubt that with your work, but... Well, um, they, we all feel that way about our own work. I mean, cause I, cause I did Google search you and I didn't see anything that looked that way. It's funny how we, how hard we are on ourselves, but, but I get what you're saying. I hate that feeling, but mm. I, I'm really interested in learning a lot about you, how you, and how you got started. So let's start with that. I mean, how did you end up becoming a painter? Well, I was, uh, I was an illustrator for many years, starting in the early eighties. And um, a friend of mine, an another illustrator, actually, who moved up from L.A. Uh, I grew up in Southern California, by the way, so I live in outside of Portland, Oregon, which is a good place to be outside of Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and um, so this guy moved up. He was doing a lot of work for Disney at the time, and he uh, he needed help. I was heavy into airbrush illustration at the time. This was in... Uh, the mid 80s, late 80s, and um, or I'm sorry, 90s. This was in the uh, mid to late 90s. And he uh, went down to California to visit his folks at uh, Christmas time. And he took his video camera with him. And while he was down there, he visited an old high school friend named Tim Soliday, who was uh, a plein air painter at the time. I'd never even heard the term plein air. I was just strictly a, an illustrator. I was, I loved, you know, the golden age illustrators. I was doing my illustration thing and had no idea at all of anything that was happening in the fine art world. So this friend of mine comes back from his vacation. And the next time I was at his house, he said, look at this. I want to show you this footage I shot of my friend Tim's studio. And he just panned around the inside of the studio. And it, the walls were filled with plein air sketches, um, you know, figure sketches from live models, everything that I knew nothing about. 
And I was so intrigued by the immediacy of the color, the life, you know, the life that was in the drawings. And um, this guy's studio just had piles of, of paintings and sketches and studies. And so I thought, boy, I want to meet this guy next time I go down to visit my folks in Long Beach. And so my friend set it up so I could meet Tim when I went down there. And so I ended up spending the, the weekend with Tim Soliday, and he took me to Steve Houston's studio. And um, between the two of those guys, in two days' time, they turned my world upside down. They introduced wow. me to air painting, to figure drawing, to Steve at the time. I, I assume you know who Steve Houston is. Mm -hmm. He... Um, he was he had this huge warehouse studio and he was teaching um the animators at DreamWorks and um I think Disney uh or Pixar, one of those, um, teaching them uh uh figure drawing. But this was on the weekend, so nobody was there but Steve, and he happened to be working on a sculpture at the time. He was heavy in the sculpture then. So I just hung out and just soaked up everything he was doing, get you know, peppered him with all kinds of questions. By the time I got home from that trip, I knew that I wanted to be a fine artist. I wanted to be a painter, but it took another 12 years before I could make the transition to quit illustration and become full-time artist. Okay. I want to know about that transition. What did that entail? Well, I, you know, I have a family, I have a wife and daughter, and I had, you know, a mortgage and all that stuff at the time. And I needed to keep making a living. I had an agent in New York bringing me illustration work and I was, you know, I was staying busy with it. I was, I was enjoying a good run. And um, so I immediately though ran out and bought a French easel. I didn't know anything about what I was doing, but I was going out um, on the weekends, plein air painting. And in the summertime, you know, when the light was longer, I'd go out after work. And I started going to um, drop in figure drawing and painting sessions all over Portland. There were several of them. There was one, called hip bone that still goes on downtown. And there was, um, there was a lady at one of the local universities that was teaching a thing at night. And then there was Oregon college of arts and crafts on Saturday morning. So I was just as much as I could get of this working from life. So, um, I was doing that and then, you know, illustrating during the daytime for most of the hours of the day. And then around 2008, when, um, the economy, kind of, you know, crashed or went into the recession, things really slowed down in the illustration market, but that gave me more time to paint. And by then I'd been, I think, starting in 05, I'd gotten into some galleries. So I was kind of living in both worlds for a while. And eventually over time, the illustration, you know, died down enough and I was making most of my income through gallery work and plein air shows that I called my agent in New York and said, you know, I think it's time to, to shut this down. And they knew what my goal was, was to move into fine art. And so they bid me farewell, wished me well, and I um, hung up the phone and I thought, that's it. I'm a fine artist now. I can paint, you know, the rest of my life. And um, wow. And that was, only, that was like 2014, maybe 13, like 10 years ago at the most. Wow, really? That's, yeah. that's a, so tell me a little bit about the kind of illustration you were doing. Cause how, so that works out to what, like 25, almost 30 years of illustration. Yeah. About 30 years. If you count the overlap. Yeah. Wow. Um, um, what was it like? 
you know, I started out uh, in the early 80s. Um, I was living in Dana Point, California, um, you know, working out of my bedroom. I had, I had one roommate there at the beach, and then um, eventually I kind of spread out into the, the living room. But I was just going around, getting picking up whatever jobs I could. I was advertising in the local penny saver uh, newspaper, you know, artist for hire. So I was I was doing everything from airbrushing surfboards to painting skateboards to designing logos and doing paste-up ads for small businesses, um, T-shirt designs. I My first art-related job was working as a, a silkscreen artist in a T-shirt factory. Hmm. And, then, um, and then through a friend's father who was an entrepreneur, um, he took me on board to sketch out ideas for his. He was starting, he had a couple of startup companies. One of them was a, uh, a toy company, and he brought on board uh, a designer who used to work at Mattel Toys. And so I got to work closely with this guy. He taught me how to do um, magic marker uh, comprehensive sketches, which came in handy later when I started getting work from advertising agencies doing um, storyboard art. I already was fairly adept with markers. Um, so I, I, I had to be kind of a jack of all trades in the beginning because you have to learn how to do, you know, everything from old school paste up, this is before computers, of course, um, pasting up ads and designs to package design to comprehensive sketches, um, logos, you know, and then at the same time, though, I was trying to break into the comic book market because I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist. You know, really? My first, my first aspirations as a child was I wanted to be an architect, but I got turned off by the math and all the straight lines and uh, so by the time I was in junior high, I wanted to be an animator. And that was a little repetitious. Um, you know, I made a small film with a friend of mine. And um, and then I got interested in comics. Um, not superhero comics, not DC Marvel stuff. But um, do you, are you familiar with an artist named Rick Griffin? I'm not. He was... Um, uh, kind of an underground artist. He did a lot of underground comics, and then he did a lot of stuff through Surfer Magazine. Um, he was big in, in Southern California in the rock and roll scene from the late 60s on through the 70s. And Anyways, he was like my first art hero as a kid, as a teenager. So I was trying to follow his path and um, the comic book stuff I wanted to get into. And there was a burgeoning comic book scene happening in Portland, Oregon, um, while I was living in California and my mother was living up here and she, and she had a friend actually who was in the business, um, uh, or a son, a friend, a son of a friend who was in the business. And so she hooked me up with him and, uh, I eventually ended up moving up here to try and get into comics and which I did for a little while, short while, but it too was like a repetitious kind of thing. And, uh, too much of the same deal, and you couldn't make much money at it unless you got onto a really popular book. And um, uh, searching for um, clients, I came across somebody who introduced me to a place called the Art Farm, which was a collective of illustrators in Portland, Oregon. All the best illustrators worked under one roof in this big old Victorian house. And I just kind of stumbled onto that, really. And they looked at my portfolio and they saw that I had some raw talent and they 
invited me to, to move in there. And that's kind of where my uh, education started with you know, really learning how to draw and paint um, because I never went to an art school or any kind of, you know. You're per, kidding. Uh, so you had 30 years of illustration without going into an illustration department? Oh, yeah. No, I never. I learned by looking over the shoulders of, of established professionals, asking questions, trial and error, you know, school of hard knocks kind of thing. Yeah, I never went to never went to school or took workshops or anything like that. No, kidding. which shows when you when you find my old crappy work online, it shows. You know, it was a long fuse, and I I never recommend this. I I am a fan to some degree of of being self taught, but I tell people don't don't do what I did. If you can get good instruction or go to a good school, do it, because I had to learn those things later in life the hard way. Whereas if I had learned them by going to school earlier on. Maybe I'd be a better artist now, but then, you know, what ifs don't really count. I'm, in, I'm, at, I'm at where I am now because of the way things turned out, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing story. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how many people I've interviewed that started out in illustration during that period. It seems like illustration just died or started to die toward the end of the 20th yeah. century. Oh yeah, I got out of it um, as uh, computers were coming along. I mean, there was a few years there, of course, um, in the '90s, late '90s, where a lot of guys were switching over. Especially people that were heavy into airbrush work um, got into Photoshop and other programs and learned how to do it digitally. And I just didn't have an interest for that. I wanted to keep working, you know, traditionally, and. Um, but I started painting in acrylics and getting more stylized and getting away from the airbrush thing as the computer, you know, digital um, phase was kind of coming into the market. So I think I escaped or fine art came along and, and grabbed a hold of me just in time or else I probably would be, if I stayed in the, in the illustration world, I'd probably be doing things a lot more digitally now. Yeah. So it sounds like when you were younger, you had, a fair amount of grit because you went out there and you're essentially going door to door looking for work. You've got no training. You got a family at home or at least you said one daughter and your wife. Um, yeah. Well that was, you know, they came along later. I mean, I, when I was in the eighties, I was, I didn't get married till early nineties. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so you were a little more comfortable being hungry when at that point, yeah. when you had all that grit. Yeah, I had low low overhead, but I still was living check, check to check. It wasn't easy, you know. And it was it was passion. I was I was not going to give up on being an artist. I was I was the class artist. I was the school kid that drew and everybody would tell me, "Oh, you're going to be an artist when you grow up." And so it was kind of implanted in me, you know, in my mind when I was small that uh, you know, I'm I'm going to be an artist someday. I just I didn't know how to go about it hmm. or what kind of art I wanted to do ultimately. But I knew that that was my calling and nobody was going to talk me out of it. So. Hmm. Yeah. What about your parents? What was their, what were their feelings about? This? Well, my dad was in favor. My dad, my parents split up when I was about 10 or 11, but we, you know, we had, I had good relationship. My brother and I would go and visit my dad every other weekend. And I remember when I was real little and they were together, um, he had a, we, we had a house in Covina, California, and 
he divided the two-car garage so that one half of it was kind of a man cave for him. And he liked to paint in oils just as a hobby. Uh, he never did it, you know, professionally. He actually worked in sales for a uh, a big outdoor advertising billboard company in L.A. And so he was around artists a lot that worked on on the lot there at the at the billboard place. And so he kind of I think he picked up an interest for painting and oils in, at that time. And so he was doing that on the weekend. So I was around the smell of of you know turpentine and oil paints from the time I was a little kid. And um, so he was in favor of me being an artist. He was always encouraging. Mom was as well, but she always wanted me to go to college and get, you know, get an academic background in, you know, some other subjects so I could have something to fall back on if my art career didn't pan out, which never worked out because um, I took maybe two two semesters, I think, in junior college at the most, and I got bored with that, and I needed to make money, so I started, you know, finding small jobs to do as an artist here and there until I got the ball rolling and got, you know, my name around town and, you know, things started coming my way. Like I said, odd jobs, you know, painting um, posters and just doing things for for small businesses, individuals. Um, So it was a rough start. Yeah. But, you know, passion will get you through those things. I mean, if that's all I know, it's that's that's all I got. You know, I've got to, I have to do art because I have no other skills. And uh, eventually, you know, doors open and I put a lot of faith in God too. That's, I mean, that's who opened the doors for me. So now you're you're a parent and having experienced this and not going and getting an academic degree to fall back on as your mom wanted you to do. I mean, what is your attitude toward this now? Um... I want, you know, I want my daughter or any any kid to follow their passion like I did. Um, you know, the world is tough. It's a hard place. You know, it's it's hard in general just to figure out what you want to do, what you want to be um, at, 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 you know, a young age when you're still in your teens or your early 20s. Um, I wouldn't say don't do it, you know, if, they, if your passion is to be an artist. And my daughter is very creative. She's not sure yet what she wants to do with her creative skills. But we're hoping that she'll go to a good school. I mean, we're, you know, we've been setting aside money for years to help her go to college. Um, but if she chooses not to, I'd, I'd support that too, as long as she's going to follow a passion. Um, like I said, if I had to do it all over again, I, I tried to go to um, the art center in Pasadena. But when I went there to the admissions office, they told me that I had to have two years of uh, a two-year degree you know, before I got there, before they would admit me. Um, and I think that's why I started community college, but I just I just got so turned off by it. I didn't want to go through two more years of school like I'd just gotten out of high school, you know, and I, and I needed to make money then. So, um, but I, 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 do, uh, I do recommend kids go to school, follow, but follow your passion first. If you can find uh, a good school to go to to help with that. I mean, you know, back in the old days, you found uh, an established professional to apprentice to, and those that seems to be really hard to do these days. And there's so much you can learn online too, mm-hmm. um, you know, classes you can take and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean, get a good education if you can. At least, 
find a group of other that was the other thing that all my friends were guitar players they were all in garage bands and so i was the guy sitting off in the corner you know designing their their fantasy uh first album cover if they ever got that far um which none of them did but uh you know it's it, it's hard when you're alone and you have a passion to do something but you just don't know who to hook up with how to connect with other people that are like-minded school will do that for you and now you know we have the internet and social media and you it's easy to find a community but back then um i was kind of isolated so it was hard you know i was really groping in the dark for a lot of a lot of those years trying to figure things out but again there's something um you know so something magical spiritual however whatever your worldview is on that that you know the universe or god will give you opportunities doors will open things happen i mean amazing things that happened in my career that had i taken a left turn at this corner instead of a right or had i not been home when the phone rang at that particular time i would have missed a connection that brought me to this next step to, to the next door to go through it's just amazing you know mm -hmm. the careers we have as artists the, the people we meet um yeah so yeah i'm with you 100 percent on that you got to give credit where credit's due but so more specifically though what i'm curious about is the backup plan i i think you and i are in the same page is in that being self-taught while there are benefits and you know maybe it's exciting maybe you're free of other people's biases i don't know what the advantages might be but i'm with you get a good education in art if you want to go into art yeah. But the backup plan is what I'm specifically curious about because I've got a son now who wants to be a photographer. I know nothing about photography. And <laughs> I don't either. My, yeah. And my, my, my whole life, I've taught my kids that um, college is only important if you want to do something that college is good at teaching you to do. And, right. and the arts is not one of those things. So um, I'm talking about traditional colleges. Um, and so now my son's saying, well, I'm not going to go to college then. I'm going to become a photographer. And I'm going to find another way to learn photography. And then all of a sudden, now when, now when the rubber hits the road, I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, mean, it's, I it's still, interesting I because... still believe it. I still believe it. But when it's your own kid, yeah. all of a sudden you're like, well, is a backup plan a good idea? You know? Well, of course, as parents, we, we were always going to have that. I mean, I've worried about my daughter from the time she was born. Um, it's interesting about the thing about photography is I've, I not only know nothing about photography, but I've had some kind of, uh, adverse, um, attitude towards it my whole life. And, and I own a really nice camera. In fact, I bought one just a couple of years ago so I could start shooting my own work instead of taking it over to my friend's studio and having him shoot it for me. Um, because he's a photographer. And he showed me a couple of settings, but they just they go right in one ear and out the other. I can't remember the stuff. Even if I write it down, I don't remember how it works. So <laughs> you know, I end up staging and really working on the lighting and then just putting things on auto. And, and somehow I come up with good shots of my work. But as an illustrator, all those years, um, it was uh, there was a dichotomy there of illustration and photography as far as advertising work and, and publishing book covers went. And I did a lot of that. Um, so I was always aware of the struggles of photographers and that there seemed to be a lot more photographers than there were artists. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe because that's um, it's a different uh, different discipline to learn how to use the machine as opposed to working with traditional tools and painting, you know, um, intuitively and so forth. Um, it takes an education. You got to learn how to do that. Um, so, yeah, as a, as a backup plan, speaking about your son, um, you know, if he has a passion that you apparently have and that I had, um, you know, I would assume he's going to, he has probably favorite photographers. Um, you know, I, I would go, if I was traveling somewhere, and this is more af- actually after I was established somewhat as an illustrator, but if I was traveling and I went into a town, I would look up whatever illustrators uh, were working that lived in that town. And I would just cold call them and say, could I come by and just, you know, I'm a fan. Could I see your work? And, and then I'd ask them all kinds of questions. You know, I would assume that that's something a, a burgeoning photographer could do as well. You know, visit other photographers' studios and see what they're doing and ask them about the business. Um, one thing I did learn, a big thing, a big part of, of being a, a freelance artist uh, on my own was the business side of things. And that's something they didn't teach. They don't teach uh, very, very much anyway, as far as I know, in, in art schools. Um, you know, I just had to learn, like, trial by fire, just how to figure out how to talk to clients, how to, you know, uh, get a, a purchase order, you know, give them an invoice, negotiate a price, so forth. Um, I think that's a lot of, I've, I've met some graduates from um, art center and different art schools, and they kind of had to learn that once they got out of school because they, they weren't taught that part of the, you know, those life lessons. So that's that's part of the, that's what I promote as far as the idea of, um learning on your own, you know, being self-taught is you've got to learn how to, to work with people and do the business side of things because a good third to a half of the time you spend as a freelance artist is, um, whether it's an illustrator or a fine artist, is handling the business side of things. So, you know, I don't know if you, I guess you could learn that if you went to business school, but that's a whole nother track mm-hmm. of yeah. you know, study. Yeah. yeah. But as far as as a, as a backup plan, I I didn't have one. I didn't feel I I was never worried about a backup plan. I knew I had skills. I just had to find places to apply them. Um and, you know, fortunately it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, I've always been preaching that if you have a backup plan, you'll use it. Yeah, that's true. Um I've known artists that have had backup plans, or they had a whole other set of skills that they learned along the way. Maybe it was music, maybe it was carpentry. And a lot of them end up, you know, having you know, one foot in both places, even later in life in their careers. And that's great if they're happy that way. Um, I can't imagine myself doing anything else. I enjoy yeah. creating so much. I enjoy painting, even with all of its struggles, with all the you know, the failures, the depression, the, the you know, just the hard parts of it. Um, I think you you eventually learn from those as well. That's just part of the journey. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the benefits outweigh the bummers. You know, that's it's always been like that. So I still love what I do. So you said you're not good with photography. Tell me about your process then. So are you not using any photographic references in your work? 
Oh yeah, no, I do. I oh okay. No, oh, when you said photography, I was talking about using a camera, knowing how to you know set the aperture and all that stuff. Oh okay. Technical part, I don't know, but um, for years I would borrow my wife's camera. She had a nice camera, and I would just put it on automatic. But I, yeah, I make um, I make appointments with models. I I'll cold call. Um, ranches and uh make up you know set up photo shoots with working cowboys um or i used to paint i used to paint jazz artists and uh jazz you know musicians nobody famous at least you know if it was a famous person it was a dead person from photographs but um i used to do that before i was doing the western work but yeah i always try and go out and shoot my own reference or if I have to Frankenstein several photos, obscure photos, I would find in an old book or a magazine to make up a, an original composition where I'm, you know, not stealing anybody's copyright or anything. I can do that mm -hmm. too. And there's a lot of imagination that goes into it because of the style I have. So I make up a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm going to go to your work a little bit earlier than I generally do because I want to talk about that style. That's one of the things that really turned me on to your work. You've got a very unique way of stylizing your subject. I want, how did you, I mean, I don't even know how to ask this, but I, I mean, cause I know it's probably an impossible question to answer, but how did this evolve? Well, thank you. You're very kind to say that. Um, you know, when I was an illustrator, Probably the biggest thing on an illustrator's mind, especially a young illustrator, is coming up with your own style. And I worried about that so much that I think I put off coming up with my own style. Um, I didn't want to copy somebody else, but at the same time to learn, I had to copy other artists. So I was, so I was looking a lot at, at the early golden age illustrators like Wyeth and Cornwell and Harvey Dunn and those guys. Um, and you know, eventually I started coming up with a drawing style and um, I applied that with a simple sort of a simplification mindset, a simplifying mindset when I go out and paint from life. So painting outdoors, plain air from life was the first thing I did within maybe a couple, three months of that. I started adding in the painting and drawing from life models at these drop in sessions I mentioned earlier. And at first, you know, it's difficult to, to compose um, a figure when you only have, you know, 30 minutes or something. And I was always, I was coming from an, the illustration background. There was a lot of detail going on back then. And I wanted to get that detail into a figure drawing or painting. And I had to train myself and to realize that you can't get all that information in one session. So. You have to abbreviate things. You've got to edit and simplify and maybe, you know, and exaggerate some other areas of the body or of a landscape. So I think it was a combination of, of what I learned as an illustrator, drawing and trying to meet a deadline. So, you know, working quickly and then simplifying and just picking up um, little bits of information from conversations or talking to other artists or looking at other artists' work. Um, that helped me get the mindset of, you know, editing out extraneous, extraneous detail that, that didn't help the composition at all. 
details I don't need. I want to make a statement with something, you know, just basic shapes and color and value and temperature and get it to a point where I'm happy with it without, you know, overworking it, which is really easy to do, especially if you bring it home and then you have a photograph to work with as well. Um, the wonderful thing about working from life is you have a time limit because the sun's moving, shadows are changing, and, you know, you have to keep it limited. So you learn to work quickly and just get down the the pertinent information in a scene. And, you know, it's just repetition of drawing and painting and focusing on the organic shapes, I guess, is, is kind of what I did mostly. And that helped me come up with a drawing style that employs a lot of S-curves, a lot of flow um, that helps keep an energy. But also um, there's a, a little, there's a hint of fantasy that's in there too that comes from my illustration background where I'm idealizing shapes like in clouds or trees or land masses. And I like to, to employ that as well, but not go so far that it starts to look like an illustration. I still want it to be fresh and be, you know, in the fine art category. It's, that's a long answer for your question. No, it's good, but it's really got me thinking. So I've had discussions with other artists on the podcast about authenticity and style and, um, you know, what makes an artist unique and so on and so forth. And, um, Many artists that I've talked to feel like we all have a certain voice that's innate to us. But what it sounds like you're saying is your experience has been more nurture than nature. It's your life experience as a as an illustrator coupled with your your heroes in painting and illustration and your desire to create a style have led to this more than something you're just born with. This is just how Eric Bowman was born to paint. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, I think we're all, we're all made up, you know, of, of um, life experiences and influences and wherever life has brought us and things we were interested in from the time we were young. And my varied background in trying to discover who I was as an artist, you know, led me through, you know, the animation comic book interests to illustration and all kinds of mediums and illustration and eventually to fine art. And I've met other artists who are incredibly talented that had no interest in art when they were young. And when they were, you know, halfway through college, they switched uh, uh, electives and, and took an art class and suddenly they got interested in art and I was always envious of those guys because um, it seems like it seems so unfair. It's like you, you you didn't have a passion for it when you were a kid. You didn't grow up with this yearning to be an artist, a painter. You just kind of picked it up on a whim, and suddenly <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you're running and you're like way ahead of me and doing so well and just painting things I could never imagine. I mean, just styles and and unique ability. Um, that I feel like I had to just scrape and claw and fight my way to get to. And even then, you know, anybody who knows the artists that I've looked at over the years can easily pick out the influences and see it in my work. I mean, to some degree, nothing is new. You know, we're right. all kind of regurgitating things that have been done before. And, and, and I've always, um, I've held to the belief that fine art in general really peaked 
you know, 100 to 150 years ago. And although there are artists here and there that can uh, reach those same heights that they did back then, it's just few and far between. The, the, the overall, um, the high bar that was set back then has not been repeated and it's hard to get up to that that level now i think we've kind of hmm. we've diversified and gone away from that going through all the isms and all the modern um you know versions of of art through the 20th century there's a you know a lot of people are looking back now 100 years ago and finding that higher caliber of work i think as for inspiration i mean i do that i know you do that. i see yeah her work um so it's it's uh, yeah it's interesting. I don't want to. None of us want to regurgitate something that's already been done. We want to do it in our own way, in our own voice. And I think that again, that's something that can't be helped. You to get your own style. If you work long enough and hard enough, it's going to come out whether you want it to or not. You're going to develop a look that's you. That's you know related to you only. And people are eventually going to recognize that and. You know, know that it's your work, your hand that did it, even though it came from all the influences of previous artists and art movements, you know, that got you there. Hmm. So just curious, what percentage of your personal style or, or or maybe speak in general, what do you believe the percentage of personal style comes from nature and what and what percentage from nurture? That's a. Where'd you get that question? That's a tough question. <laughs> I know it's impossible to answer, but just, just what are your thoughts with your own experience? That. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? I never, I never think about that. I think about, um, um, you know, I'm always trying to come up with, with a new, something new in a composition or approach, approaching something new, changing up my palette or something like that. That's always a thought that's in my mind because I don't want to. I've read enough biographies on artists, and you know enough enough dead guys. I've seen the proje the trajectory of their careers, and some of them died in obscurity or penniless. Some of them went out on a high note. Um, some of them reinvented themselves as the decades went on, and I don't want to get stuck in a rut where I'm doing the same thing over and over again. I think that's all. That's always going on in my mind. The, the subconscious thing that happens, I think, is when I go outside or when I hire a model and I paint from life and I'm having that experience of working with somebody. You know, I, I built a big model stand in the middle of my studio. You can't see my, I'm up in a loft. Mm -hmm. Downstairs is the, the, this is like a, like one fifth of my studio up here. Downstairs is the big, open space and I have a, a model stand I built down there. So when I work from live models, um, that experience, uh, you know, talking to somebody, having them sitting there, slowly breathing, slowly settling into a pose, um, you know, it's different obviously than working from a photograph and you have this interchange, getting to know the person while you're working with them. So stuff like that and going out and working out in, in a new place outdoors, doing a plein air session. I think there's a subconscious influence that's happening there. You're interacting with nature, you're interacting with another person. Um, and so there's a percentage there that influences me as opposed to the percentage that's 
um, happening in my mind that I'm purposely, you know, researching and trying to develop more, but I don't know what the ratio is. So, yeah, I guess it's impossible to really know. Um, the reason I asked though, is because I have really been trying to get more acquainted with landscape painting and, uh, there's a few hot shots here in Utah that are that deserve that description. That is, there's no sarcasm at all in that. I mean, literally, they're hot shot painters. They're awesome in Utah, yeah. and they get they get mimicked a lot, a lot. I mean, I can tell when someone's looking at this artist or that artist. It's it's really name one for me. what's Could that? You name one? Could you name one for me so I know you? Because I probably know who you're talking about. Um, well, I, I don't, I, I think, uh, it would be okay to name who gets mimicked a lot, but maybe not the mimicker. Joshua mm -hmm. Clare is one of the really great landscape painters here. Yeah. I went to China with Josh. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's exceptional, but he gets mimicked a lot. I see people doing similar strokes to him and this, that, and the other. And so I'm often curious when I'm out painting the landscape and I have people like you in my mind and many other landscape painters who I admire who I certainly don't want to mimic, but I want my paintings to be more than a copy of nature. I want to, like you did, I'm after finding a style, something that separates my landscapes from other landscape painters. And mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I'm curious about that because right now I feel like while I do have my own way of making marks, I still feel like I'm copying nature while I'm learning. So, um, so this has just been on my mind. And it yeah. fascinates me to hear you say that you actually made an effort to find a style. Because oftentimes artists will say, no, it just came to me. This is just who I am. And maybe that's true. Well, but I think, but that's, I think that's the better way, the organic way. I, I overthought it. And that's why I think it, I put it off. I mean, it, it didn't come for a while because I was trying too hard. It actually happened one day when someone came to me and they said, um, they were talking about a, a painting they saw someplace and they said they knew immediately it was mine because they because of my style and i thought but i don't really have a style yet what are you talking about this is you know years ago um but they explained to me what it was that that they liked about the painting what they thought was different than you know the next guy and i had to agree with them i i, I said well yeah i guess i do do that that way, whatever it was, I can't remember what it was she was saying, hmm. a particular part about it. But when, once she said it, then I recognized, oh, yeah, I, that's something I do. And I thought about it for a moment. And I thought, well, I guess other people don't do it like the way I do it. And then I had that, you know, aha moment that that's how it is with every artist. And nobody does exactly what the other person does. And the guys you talk about that are kind of copying like Josh Clare, um, I think that's also a natural thing. Hopefully they're younger artists or earlier in their oh, yeah. career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this isn't, uh, they're gonna, yeah, they're it's not, it's not an insult toward these artists. The only reason I don't mention their names, I don't want to embarrass anybody. We all go through. Oh, no, it's, it's actually, it's actually, uh, it's a compliment to the artists that they're copying. Right. Yeah. The point is to learn and then deviate from that and eventually, you know, move into your own style, your own approach. Like, so when I was, an illustrator, all my work was very tight. I was using little triple lot brushes and airbrushes. Really? And, oh yeah. I was doing every little hair, you know, stuff. I just, I don't want to do now. Um, so, and then when I look at your work and I was looking at your website just before we came on here and, you know, you have a much 
much tighter approach than I do, at least with your figure stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I could imagine if you're just, um, I'm, I'm, I know this isn't the first time you've gone out and painted outdoors, but if you're getting into doing that more, um, there's probably some bit of a struggle to work from your your previous or, or your style that you do with your figurative work. <laughs> Absolutely. In nature, yeah, and, and abbreviating that and stylizing that. It, it takes a while. So Tim Soliday told me when I met him that weekend, he said, and it was very discouraging to hear, uh, he said it, it would take me about five years to get a handle on plain air painting. And I thought, five years? I don't have five. You know, I was like in my 30s. I don't have five years. Um, you know, I'm better than that. I know what I you know, I can draw and paint. And, and of course, I went out and, and I was terrible at it because I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't see... Even looking at other people's, you know, established good painters' work, I could not even see what I was supposed to see in their work. I would think I knew what they were doing, and I'd go out and I'd fumble through it, and I couldn't get close to what they were doing because I just, I didn't have the experience and I didn't have the knowledge um, or the the insight to even understand what I was looking at, looking at a good fine art, you know, plain air painting or a painting by one of the old, you know, early California impressionists. I didn't, I couldn't appreciate what I appreciate about those now. I did appreciate it and I saw something that excited me, but I couldn't process it the way I can now because I understand more about the actual painting process. Um, so it, and true to what Tim said, it took me, well, I met him in 1998. I got into my first gallery in 2005. So it took almost seven years before I was in a gallery and actually felt like I, you know, had a handle on plain air painting and I was still wasn't doing it very well. I still don't. It <laughs> is really difficult. It is difficult and it should be. It should, you know, yeah. anything's worth doing should be hard because, and then the rewards are, are, are amazing. You know, the first reward is pleasing yourself, coming off with a painting you feel really good about, you feel confident and like you succeeded. And then the second reward, of course, is when somebody else, um, you know, loves it just as much and, and has to own it and they buy it. Hmm. So, so, it's not easy. so it sounds like what happened to you is similar to, to an experience I had when I was in college. But I think what you're saying is at some point you just let go of this idea that you needed to find your own voice or style and then just yeah. painted. And it's only yeah, then stop you stop worrying about it. And only then a few years later or sometime later, you look back and went, oh, crap, I just found my style. And I didn't even wasn't even trying. Yeah, I think yeah. that's how it's supposed to work. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe I would have if I hadn't worried about it earlier, it might have developed earlier. I don't know. Yeah. So I went to um, a local state school here and. And uh, they were really hard on style. Find your voice, find your voice. They weren't focused so much on academics and painting and drawing. A little, some of the teachers were a little more than others, but it was all about voice, 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 voice. But I couldn't paint at all. I didn't know how anything about paint. I didn't even know mixing uh, orange and blue together makes brown. I had no idea. And, um, but yet I'm supposed to find my voice, you know? So I started teaching myself after school. I'd I'd just, you know, give them what they wanted. 
I did poorly, but then I'd go home and I'd teach myself after school, give myself assignments. Long story short, um, a year into that, I had this little, this little, I had a two bedroom condo and then one, one of these little bedrooms wasn't, was, uh, my studio. And I just had paintings piled all over the wall from a year's worth of me trying to figure out painting. And one day I remember walking into the studio and looking at all those paintings and going, oh my gosh, I have a look to my work. But all I was doing for that year was just trying to learn how to use the dang medium. Well, and you know what you discovered too was probably because you were looking at a body of work, you right. saw a continuity there. I saw that's, continuity. That's how we know we have a, a style is when we see a continuity that's flowing from you know picture to picture. Yeah. Yeah. But the crazy thing is, like you, I wasn't. I was just trying to figure out painting. I was not. I literally was going against what my teachers were saying. Find your voice and saying, just let me figure well, out. That's that's a good point to bring up because. Um, the, the artists that were that are my age that were going to uh, art school in the early 80s were still being they were they were still teaching you know a modernist approach and paint by you know paint what you feel and all of that kind of thing if you wanted an academic education in drawing and painting you had to take an illustration course right this is what I was told so had I gone to art school, um, it would have been good for me because I was an illustrator. That's what I was, you know, that was the, the track I was on at the time. So that would have been good. But if I had been a, a fine artist, um, I don't even know if I would have been interested in representational work like I am now when I was in my early 20s. You know, it wasn't popular. I mean, you could you could probably go into a, you know, stumble into a, a thrift store or a you know flea market somewhere and pick up a, a Hanson Puduff painting or a William Went, you know, back at that time because nobody was really buying those in the 70s and early 80s. Um, now all that stuff's, you know, highly collectible. And, and of course, when the internet came along, there's so much information we can get that way. But um, yeah, there was a period there, had I gone to school, that I wouldn't have learned what I'm doing now. So I think I still had to learn it on my own. Yeah. Sounds like you kind of had to do that a little bit too. A little bit. I mean, I had I had a few good teachers, and 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 I did pick up some things. I actually went to three different schools, so I did pick up some things from various teachers. But but yeah, but the style thing, though, it wasn't until like I said, until I stopped thinking about it. So it's interesting to hear you say the same thing. Well, and it's I think it's too much to expect a a, a young art student to craft a style when they're just starting out anyways. I mean, style, I mean, there's very few artists and musicians and, you know, any discipline of art, I think, where they are, you know, virtually peaking at the beginning of their, you know, at the onset of their career. I mean, you could name a few musicians that did that and, you know, reach the heights of their, of their skills and their talents when they were in their 20s, and then they kind of coast on that the rest of their careers. Art. Painting in particular, from what I understand, is something that um, it's a lifelong development. And a lot of artists don't really mature until they're in their 60s and 70s. Um, and some go out on a high note in their 80s, you know, painting and learning and developing still all the way up 
to the end of their careers or, you know, as opposed to like a, uh, an athlete who peaks and burns out, you know, before they're 30 years old. That's, that's what I, that's part of the drive and the passion I have as an artist is that knowing that there is potential that I can be a better artist, a better painter um, in the years to come and that I haven't, certainly haven't peaked. I hope not, you know, at this point. Isn't that great? I, yeah, I, I think it's, I, I feel so bad for dancers and athletes that work so hard yeah. to become great at their craft. Right. And then they hit 35 and they got to completely change direction. So, there, so there's somebody who needs a backup plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amen um, to that. Unless you're, well, unless, unless you're, yeah, unless you're, yeah. Unless you're, you're so high in, in, in that field that you get endorsements and, you know, or you made so much money, you can retire early. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's look at your work again. I want to pull out a few of my favorite paintings and, and maybe just have you give me your thoughts on them. First of all, um, which of these are, well, let me just specifically ask about this one. Is this one, one of your plain air pieces? Yes, it is. I did that a few years ago in uh, Sonoma plain air. I did that show for 10 years through the 2000 teens. I love that area. This is just over the hill from Sonoma. And the interesting thing about this, um, while I was painting it with a couple other buddies of mine that were in the show, and while we were painting this, the current owner of the house came over and talked to us about it. And he explained to us that this house, and it was just basically a little shack house, and I think there was a, a barn off to the side, but I focused on this part. He said that this house was the house that um, Patty Hearst when she was uh, uh, with the, what was it, the SLA, um, when she was captured by the police, this is where they took her first before they took her, they took her here for like a debriefing and to interview her um, before they took her to jail. It was hmm. at this little shack out in the middle of this, you know, farmland uh, near Sonoma, California. Hmm. So that was like their claim to fame for the, that property. But um, yeah, it was, that's like a, you know, hour long painting. It's uh, what size is that? Eight by, ten. Eight by 10. This is a little one. Yeah. Um, the guy I was painting with, Eric Jacobson, good friend of mine, he's, um, you know, this is the serendipitous part about my education as an artist. He happened to move to um, Good River, Oregon, and I met him in the first plein air show I ever did. Uh, Pacific Northwest Plain Air back in 2005. And he had a completely different approach to painting. And he, he'd he been painting for a number of years and, and got his education at the Lyme Academy back East. And so he knew a lot more about painting certainly than I did. And so I kind of watched him for a few years and I picked up on uh, a number of, of things with his approach. And this painting is on linen that I, you know, I make my own linen panels, and um, it's pretty thick paint, pretty direct, um, you know, just light and shadow and getting color into the pools and the shadows and warm in the light and so forth. Um, completely different than, you know, what I was doing when I was first starting out. I was, I was still painting like an illustrator when I started oil painting. Um, but by now, by the time I did this, I had a little more well, you know, can you be more specific on what you mean? I mean, I think I know what you mean, but can you expound on that? You were painting like an illustrator? Yeah. Um, 
much more detail. I probably would have pulled out a straight edge to do that telephone pole instead of freehanding it, you know, and getting that kind of wave a little bit of it in there. What I what I don't like now, and I haven't for quite a while, is what I call a perfect painting, where everything is fleshed out and detailed, and everything is like perfectly. I like I like the human element in paintings. I like little mistakes. I like happy accidents. I like things that um, you know areas that maybe could have used a little more work or. But if you did that, then you would have robbed yourself of the spontane spontaneity that was there, the liveliness and the stroke. The wonderful thing about plein air painting is because you're on, under such a time limitation, is that your brain automatically you train yourself over a period of doing it to um, edit things out that aren't needed and, um, you know, make marks rather than uh, strokes. So the difference for me is a stroke might be something that's, um, or maybe instead of a stroke, let's say, instead of rendering. Okay. Rendering, you know, very consciously copying the contour of a shape and filling it in and finessing it. Whereas a mark, you know, loading up a, um, a hog bristle brush with a bunch of paint and just slapping down a mark and making that represent, you know, a shape or an accent of whatever the subject is I'm painting. And if I can pull it off with a mark that tells the viewer, oh, that's, you know, a branch on a tree or that's a shadow of a person standing next to, you know, a structure or whatever. Um, I feel that that's a more successful um, painting uh, because it's, I don't know, it's, it's the spontaneity, I think, that resonates with me. The great painters that I love from the past were able to do that. Um, it's not a time-saving thing, although it is an abbreviated way of working. It does save time, but that's not the point. Point is making an impressionistic mark or stroke or shape that conveys something representational, and then moving on to the next shape, and so hmm. thereby keeping a liveliness, a freshness to the to the painting rather than a belabored look to it, which kind of turns me off. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The, the amazing thing about this is it is so simple. And yet you've captured the sense of light to the degree that I almost feel like I'm outside and I need to squint. Like the sun is so bright on the side of the building. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, that was what, that's what attracted me to it um, was I set up different, you know, the other two guys I was with, we all had different positions, um, different perspectives on this. But I liked that that telephone pole made that, that center line down the, the side of the wall there. And that the wall was a big enough shape so... I ended up with one dominant light shape. You know, there's there's light off to the side on the left side there, but it's not as large or interesting as the one that's kind of in the center. And then I have light on that other uh, vertical pole there on the right side. But anyway, I was the light that was attracting me to it, and I wanted that to be the dominant um, message or you know statement in the painting. And sometimes you just come across these things. Mm. You know, they a little bit of help. But usually it's something that catches your eye that you know it's something you can work with. And then, um, you know, if you can you know, approach it with an abbreviated, quick uh, approach, don't spend a lot of time overthinking it. Just lay down those, those lights and darks 
and then you know put a couple accents in and and then leave it you know walk away don't keep messing with it because there's always a temptation to do that um and i've ruined a lot of paintings doing that bringing it back to the studio and then overthinking and thinking well i i should you know tweak this part a little bit or touch this area up over here sometimes that's okay but you can end up going too far with that and then you suddenly you realize you've lost the spontaneity and the, the fresh liveliness that you you know first had when you when you were in the in the field mm. so hopefully you know this one came out a little more successful in that oh regard. absolutely so what else is plain air i want to go over some of your plain airs for now what about this that one? one yeah that was painted in um borrego uh anza borrego desert i think it's the largest national park in the country it's hundreds of square miles um mm. between you know south of palm springs on down to the mexican border and i was out there with uh another couple artists and i had a hotel room in in the small town of borrego springs but these guys were camping up in this ravine you can see at the bottom where the shadow starts there was a big uh, mountain behind us so i just set up and i found this odd looking rock um kind of perched on the side of this little bluff and started painting that um again it's you know it's uh what is that it's a 10 by 12 so it's mm -hmm. a small smallish painting probably an hour maybe a little yeah. over an hour um yeah it's if if you can and but look i i blow these paintings all the time i have stacks of of small panels that either need to be scraped or painted over or tossed because um i just didn't pull it off i mean oh that's nice to hear <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this doesn't this does it's yeah. not easy sometimes sometimes it is easy it just for whatever reason you you just happen to mix the right value and temperature and you you know you come off with a, a decent painting um and that was the case here it's like i pre-mixed because the sun was going down that that shadow was creeping up pretty quickly but i established the parts that were moving um first because they were going to change obviously so i i decided so you worked shadow, right here in the foreground really early on and so i mixed up you know good piles of of maybe three different values of those shade colors and then um and then I could take my time later. You know, I put down some some notes. So I, I also mixed up a color for the lightest light, maybe in that rock or maybe in the distant um, background, so that I knew what that would be uh, later on if the sun covered those uh, or the shadow covered those and, and they changed in temperature. Hmm. Um, so yeah, you're always you know it's like it's like when I was an airbrush artist, you always had to think about the next area in the painting that you were going to paint um, because you have to mask sections off and it's always this forethought that's going on. It's the same thing with, with painting. You're always thinking about your next move and preparing for that. Hmm. Um, that was a good yeah. tip. That's, that's going to help me. I'm actually going plain air painting this afternoon and you're going to be, oh, cool. you're going to be right here the whole time. <laughs> I'm going to be trying to channel <laughs> your wisdom. Yeah, don't listen to everything I say. But, I don't know. Um, I would kill to be a painter helps. like you. So what yeah, about this one looks like it was plain air as well? Yeah. 
that's on the coast here in Oregon. Um, I found this spot. It's interesting when you move up the coast from from say Northern California, Southern Oregon on up. Uh, you start to get more basalt, dark black rock where rocks come down to the the shoreline. But I found this spot that had a lot of sandstone going on. I don't know, you know, geologically the the reasoning for that, but um, I found a, a, this bluff that went out on this on this point, and I set up out there. And um, again, it's, this is an eight by ten, so it's a short, you know, kind of a quick painting. It was in the morning time, and the the greatest thing about this painting that I enjoy is the fact that uh, the great painter Christopher Blossom bought this in uh, in a show in New York. Awesome. I'm, you know, totally honored to be in his collection. So, yeah, that's that's my greatest memory from this painting. But um, I like to go to the Oregon coast, and there's parts I call the low, the lonely Oregon coast because there's areas that just are not developed, and you can still find, you know, places that look like they did probably, you know, a hundred years ago or more where there aren't any people or structures or anything. And that was kind of one of these little secret spots. Yeah, it's beautiful. One of the things I notice about your work is it's, it seems like you do very little mixing because your strokes have lots of varying colors. It's like you're mixing really quick on the palette and letting the paint be separated a little bit. The colors separate a little bit in the stroke. Yeah, I there's one of my favorite artists is um, E. Carlton Fortune, uh, Euphemia Fortune. She was uh, uh, an early California impressionist painter. She doesn't get the do, the the accolades that that the guys you know that were painting back in her time do of the California painters, but um, she had this technique of mixing several hues on her not even mixing, just I think she was probably dragging her brush through three or five piles of paint on her palette and then just pulling them across the canvas. So you get 15 different combinations of, of color, you know, in, in mm -hmm. one brush. And it's just amazing. It, I don't think you can, you can't control that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's, you know, like I, I rely a lot on the happy accident yeah mantra and and a lot of times those don't work out you know i want things to look spontaneous and i want those surprising color combinations um to happen in, in the brush stroke or laying one next to the other or going over like i often start with smooth synthetic brushes to map out the composition and then i call it the oreo effect so i'll come back with um a thick hog bristle, hog bristle brushes and do thicker paint that has a lot of, you know, three-dimensionality to it on top of the, the thinly underpainting. And then um, in a plein air situation, I'll go back on top of that with the thin brushes again, but it works best when that middle, um, those thick brushes have kind of tacked up overnight. Then I like to come back with the, the synthetic brushes again in a, in a dry brush style and put an optical um, three-dimensional feel on top. So it's like 
um, you know, a dry brush mark has a very dragged on you know, texture to it. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's a, it's a flat, it's not, it's two dimensional, but it gives a three dimensional kind of optical illusion. And when you put that on top of thick paint that already has, you know, little micro shadows from the brush stroke, um, it adds another dimensionality to the texture. And that's a hard thing to control, but sometimes, Sometimes I can pull it off and have some success with it, and that's that's what I like about doing that layered kind of effect. Uh, but yeah, a lot of a lot of what I do when I paint outdoors, and it's rushing. It's you know I'm just hoping things are going to work out. It's not it's not very calculated. I'm not that kind of painter. I don't have that skill set where some guys can mix exactly what they want. Um, you know, I think Josh is really good at, at that. You know, he could probably, he works with a limited palette too. Yeah. So he can mix out of three or four colors, the the temperature, the value um, that he wants and put it right into the picture. And I just, I just don't have that skill set. So I'm, I'm a lot of, a lot of what I do is just haphazard and sort of serendipitous. Sometimes it's successful. A lot of times it isn't. Hmm. I bet if I interviewed Josh, he might say the same thing about himself. I've painted with him though. And man, he is fast. Yeah. He is yeah, fast. I, I know. I, I just, again, <laughs> another, thing, another thing I'm envious of those guys is that, um, and he does so much of it too. You know, I don't, I don't paint outdoors as much as I paint in the studio. Nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, if I painted, if I made more of an effort to paint outdoors on a regular basis, um, I know it would, uh, I would just learn more. It's just a, it's a, it's an accumulative um, process. The more you do it, the more you learn, the more it becomes habitual or instinctive. Mm -hmm. And some, I have some of that working for me, but there's, you know, there's always that, those things that, that can still keep on developing. They're out ahead of me that I'm, you know, that are my current goals to just get better at the, um, recognizing what I need and recognizing where to, to grab from my palette. You know, it's one of the reasons we always have our, our colors laid out the same place every time on our palette is so that we get used to where we want to reach and reach quickly to grab that, to mix with this, to come up with that. Um, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff helps, but the repetition is really what teaches you. It's interesting talking to you, how humble you are, because I just think uh, I, you're one of the best out there. It's incredible oh, your work. No, no, no. It's yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's good. That's what we all, you know, there's always a faster gun in town, right? Yeah, there's always. That's true. And it's and it's good to have those. I mean, if 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 you were the best, who? What would you look to? You'd probably become bored. You know, if you were that good, if it came that easily to you, you would you would just quit after some time i think you wouldn't you there wouldn't be a challenge anymore yeah and there's so many there's so many contemporary artists you know when i made that statement earlier about fine art peaking 100 to 150 years ago i still stand by that but that's not to say that there aren't contemporary guys that are painting at that level today oh there they're are just aren't, yeah there are not many of them it's not the same high standard across the board and that might be because there's such an influx of of painters, um, you know, there's there's a whole cottage industry that was 
begun with a magazine a few years back that, um, as uh, you know, they call it the new golf. You know that call put the call out for everybody to go out and pick up a a, a paintbrush and become a plein air painter. Nothing wrong with that. That's great, but it has kind of glutted the market with you know everybody and their aunt are plein air painters now, and there's a plein air show in every other town. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you're you know, so you get a, a there's tons of artists everywhere of at all different levels, um, but I I certainly don't think of myself I, I think of myself as a competent artist. I can do good work at times and make a living at it, um, but I'm frustrated a lot of times because I'm not where I want to be, and I fail a lot. And I you know I don't post the failings of course you don't want to do that, but um, I'm often, you know, wishing I could paint as good as this guy or that guy. And I'm talking about contemporary painters. Oh, yeah, we um, all do that. So many good artists there out there. Are. There are. I got a technical question for you. One of the things I like about your work that I've seen in many of your paintings is you have this. Well, first of all, your paintings have a lot of form. So mm. a lot of form. They're very three-dimensional looking. But at the same time, they have this linear quality that serves the design of the painting, I think. Like, you know, you'll put like this little red line here and this band of red through here and this band of ochre through here and so on and so forth. You put these beautiful lines on edges. Is this one of those accidents or is this something that you're consciously no, it's doing? Conscious, it's a conscious thing. And I think that came from Wayne Tebow. Oh, I love um, Wayne Tebow. <laughs> he was the first guy that I noticed that would um, really capitalize on the phenomena of light, where light meets shadow, mm-hmm. that borderline. Um, supposedly, technically, it's kind of hard. You have to know what to look for. You know, if, if you if you understand the concept, you can look for it and see it, but there's a vibration between light and dark and the temperatures of light and dark and they seem to at least optically they um they exaggerate on those borders where they meet and wayne tebow really um, exploited that like when you look at the shadows of you know a plate with a slice with a a pie on it or a multitude of plates on a tabletop the shadows of those plates he will um, exaggerate that temperature shift going from the cool shadow to the warm light. And I can see that in nature. It's it's really there. Sometimes it's more pronounced. Sometimes it's not. It's hard to see. But I want to get some of that in there because it's just another reason. I think I look at it as another excuse to put a temperature shift into a composition that might heighten the quality or the interest in the painting instead of just going from, you know, a cool violet into a warm beige well let's let's sneak in you know a complementary or something in there to make it just a little more interesting is it important what color you choose or do you have some flexibility oh there's yeah there's lots of flexibility sometimes it's it's um it's more temperature um you know it could be a complementary or it could be uh in the same um hue family but just a different value but as long as it's got enough of its own body like the at the bottom there near my signature that that little red pinkish line right here um, 
Yeah. Um, that has enough body to it that you can go from the, the shadow to that red mark and then into the light. So there's three different values, three different temperatures going on there. So it kind of stands alone, that little line. But it's, you know, it's hopefully it's not something you zero in on. Maybe, you know, you did because you're an artist. But the average person would just see, you know, the light and shadow that's making up the form there. Right. So, yeah, some, it's, I you know, if I'm grabbing color quickly, it might be something I didn't intend. In fact, more often than not, it's it's a t color or temperature I didn't necessarily um, intend or I wasn't, uh, you know, that calculated about, but it, it worked, so I left it, that kind of thing. Mm -mm. Okay. But then you're also so selective about it because you're not, like, along this shadow, you're not doing it all the way down. It's just... No, Real right. bright, chromatic here, and then fades to nothing. Yeah, so, th so there is a selectivity about it that happens. So I'm taking, I'm, I'm exploiting a happy accident. Maybe mm -hmm. I might have that that red mark might have run all the way up the side of that dark shadow shape, and then I, you know, edited part of it out to make it less obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the little the little finessing things that you do. Um, in a plein air situation like that before you shut it down and call it quits. I can't wait to go plein air painting this afternoon. You seriously inspiring me so much here. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm getting excited about it too, talking about it. <laughs> I might even do it. Okay. So you said you work a lot in the studio. So show me a studio landscape. I'm assuming um, this one's from studio. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. So tell me the difference so, so about is... how you work in the studio versus in uh, plain air. Okay, so this this painting is like completely out of my head. Oh. I just I you know, it's it's from memory of a painting out in the desert and then so I just I just made up these this little mountain range and then built up the rest of it as an exercise in color temperature, getting the blue greens down there in the foreground, the shadow areas, and then the warm tones uh, where the sun is hitting the mountains. And then of course, making up the sh the cloud shapes. That's always fun to do. Um, and just inventing color. Um, so I did this actually on an eight by 10 first before I I would never take, this is a 20 by 24. I would never take a 20 by 24 and say, yeah, I'm just going to make something up. You know, it's, that would be, first of all, too far outside of my comfort zone scale-wise, and then probably a waste of it if I did that without coming up with, you know, a rough sketch first. So I made up the rough idea, and then I, I transferred it to a larger canvas and then enhanced it or, you know, drove it a little further in this size. Do you feel like but it's just this is just out of working from, you know, you do a thousand plain air sketches, you you learn a few things you like to do and like to repeat. I guess that's where your 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 own voice comes from. So I just took those things that I already knew and that I like to do in a painting and and put those into into a composition that I just drew out of my mind, out of my imagination. You'd literally just answer the question I was about to ask, and that is how much does your plain air experience influence your imaginative paintings? Yeah, so, like 100%. Yeah. 
So if you hadn't been out there plein air painting constantly, you wouldn't be able to be successful with that. No, no, it would look entirely different. Yeah. So is this one made up this as well? Another, yeah, this one is too. Wow. Um, I think the the shapes at the bottom there, you know, I've been to Utah a few times in the south and painted there. Um, but I mean, really, honestly, if you if you have drawing skills and you've been to a place like that, you can totally make up a scene like this. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, nobody could come along and say, oh, yeah, I've been to that part of Monument Valley or wherever they think it might be and, and, and tell me that they know those those bluffs. I'd have to say, well, no, you don't, because I made those up. But it's not a difficult thing to do. It's just using imaginative drawing skills and, you know, and placement to come up with a composition that's somewhat interesting and has some depth to it. And then, you know, capitalizing on um, idealizing the, the big shapes, the cloud shapes. One thing I learned from, from uh, plein air painting, a friend of mine, um, Tim Bell, who's a, a largely a marine painter um, on the East Coast. He's in Maryland. He's a fantastic painter. Um, he taught me to, to uh, focus on keeping the big shapes. Um, he says, uh, what is it? Unity in variety and variety in unity. So you keep the big shapes, but you have a variety within those big shapes that um, still retains the, the large graphic shape, mm. the large form has um, a variety of little subtle shifts in temperature or marks or whatever, yet it retains a unity to the next big shape. Um, so okay. when I was doing this, the big shapes. And this is a larger piece. I did, again, I did a small acrylic study before I did this. this is a third, I've got to read the screen, 34 by 30. So I mapped it out in a little acrylic study first. But um, the trick, and the trick in that is, or the, the tip on that is to not go too far with the study and leave plenty of room for exploration when you do the big version. So this is, you know, markedly different from the small study I did. But once you get running with the paint and you, you start to, you know, change some of the shapes and just sort of go intuitively by what you're feeling, you know, feeling out compositionally when you're actually painting it. Uh, it's a fun, that's the fun process of painting is the, the exploration part, the, the stuff that you don't plan. Yeah. You have some idea of where you want to go. Yeah. So that phrase that you just uh, quoted, um, the, the big shape, are, are you referring to shapes like this that are technically uh, just one big cloud shape, but within the cloud shape, you have like greens and pinks and yellows, but they're all similar yeah, values. So it reads right. as one shape. Yeah, but yet it has the subtle variety that creates more interest. And that's what I love about doing the temperature shifts. If you can get similar or exact values in two different temperatures and put them next to each other, you can actually turn form that way very subtly, or it can read as a flat, you know, they could read as the same, um, on the same plane, yet adds, it adds interest. It's not just one color, it's a variety of 
you know, maybe two or three different hues or temperatures. And then within those, they can have a subtle, you know, half a value shift. And this is all stuff you don't think about doing it kind of happens organically when you're moving the paint around, as long as you stay in control of those values. And those are the paintings I like by other people that, that interest me the most when it has those, that second read um, quality of, of interest beyond just the big shape. Why do these clouds here along the bottom and this cloud work? Because if I if I analyze them critically, then they almost look like stones in the sky. But yet they don't yeah. look like stones in the sky. They look like dark clouds. It's funny you say that. I just I just shipped off a fifteen piece solo show okay. to my gallery, the Maxwell Alexander Gallery in, in L.A. And one of the paintings in that show. Um, I was painting it and it was a, it's a cowboy out in the desert and it's largely a cloud painting. So there's all these big clouds floating in the air and the, the original concept was I wanted the clouds to look like, um, I wanted the, them to be very geometric shapes in nature, you know, three dimensional, but I wanted them to look like they were shaped more like, like rocks that had, you know, planes to them. Yeah. Um, and and I was doing that, and then someone came over to visit, and and they looked at the painting. This was a non-artist person, and they said, "That's interesting. How come you? What? Are, why do you have all those rocks in the sky?" <laughs> and I had to explain to them, "Well, they're they're clouds. They're not rocks." And and then they went away. And then another friend of mine came by like a week later, and they said, "Wow, that's really cool. I like how the I like those rocks in the sky. You know, those big boulders and." And then I started getting the message that, okay, I've gone too far with this. They're, they're looking too much like rocks. But so I don't I think you went too far on this one. Well, not this one, but, but no. the other one, I had to dial it back and, and, you know, round off some of the, the, the shapes to make them look more, you know, make them read as clouds, but still very idealized stylist, you know, funky clouds. Right. So, yeah. With this to, to answer the question is how, you know, why does it make sense? It's like, I'll paint and paint and paint because it's not making sense. And then when it eventually starts to make sense, then I feel, okay, you know, maybe this is going to work out after all. But I probably changed that foreground dark cloud there at the top, that shape probably, you know, a dozen different times until I felt like it was not too intruding, not too distracting. You know that it was integrating with the rest of the shapes and the and the temperatures and the in the composition, but it took a while to get there because when I, even when I go from a study or or two or three studies, so sometimes I'll do a multitude of drawings to color studies to the final canvas. I, you know, it develops and morphs every time I do the next version. So this is way different than the the original drawing in my sketchbook started out. But that's because I keep exploring and trying to find those fun, happy, you know, accidents that happen in the process. Um, but also, if you were if you were a very left brain person and yet a student of nature, you might question, well, 
why is that cloud that dark or that color or that temperature? You know, does that really happen in nature? And sometimes I push those things into the fantasy realm where maybe mm. actually that wouldn't occur, but it's just on the border where it'll slip by if, you know, people don't question it too much. Mm-hmm. But it, but as long as it's fun and interesting, and I feel like I, you know, succeeded in that, then, then it, I'll let it out of the studio. Yeah. A lot of things don't that way so yeah yeah so a couple of questions about what you had just said about the struggle one does sometimes do you sometimes go home at the end of a painting day and just feel like man i'm never gonna get this painting right you know what i have is i've self-diagnosed myself as um obsessive compulsive in this one area I'll be painting at my easel. Um, another thing I learned to do from another artist was to um, step back, you know, walk back from my easel 25 feet, 20 feet or so, and constantly back and forth, back and forth. Um, Tim Bell, who I was uh, referring to earlier, he will wear a path in the ground when he's out painting outdoors because he'll go back to evaluate from a far distance. And that's that's so helpful to do um, compositionally, and um, so I'll do that, and and then I'll think that I've got something looking good, and then I'll go to shut down because it's dinner time, and I'll walk. You know, my my studio is like fifty feet long, so I'll I'll walk fifty feet to the door, and I'll make the mistake of turning around and looking at the canvas before I turn the light off, and I'll see something just just yes, screaming to me that this is wrong. This needs help right now. And I mean, my house could be on fire. My studio is on our property behind our house. My wife could be screaming, you know, some emergency. And I would say, I would still say, well, I'll be there in just a second. I got to fix this. <laughs> or I cannot literally walk out of the building. And it's, it's embarrassing because I shouldn't be that fragile. I shouldn't be that weak, you know, that I couldn't say, well, okay, mental note, or even write it down, I'll work on that first thing tomorrow morning. No, I've got to go deal with it now, or I won't be able to focus on anything else or even sleep well that night because I didn't take care of the problem I saw. You're it's, not alone in that. You described me to a T. You do that too. Okay. Oh my gosh, yeah. In fact, in, in fact, um, maybe this is too personal for the podcast, but I mean, I feel like I have a good marriage, but the one one of the struggles <laughs> in our marriage has been that I'm completely undependable. My, I'll say, I'll tell my wife, yeah, I want to be home for dinner at seven, and it's ten o'clock when I get home. And after twenty six mm -hmm. years of marriage, she's just sort of thrown her hands in the air and been like, I cannot expect Jeff at a time. It's oh, just I'm impossible. You're in my club. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same exact thing. I walk, if I, heaven forbid, something go wrong right at the last minute, well, three, four more hours to the studio. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I have to have that, I have to have enough closure there. And it doesn't have to be completely, um, you know, rectified. As long as I get it to a point, it's just, it has to get to a point where I'm comfortable with where it's at and I'll pick it up, you know, because it's, it's always, halfway through a painting so I'm, I'm still going to be working on it for the next several days but there's a piece that i need about it before i can leave the studio and sometimes it's hard to reach that and 
And, you know, <laughs> same thing with my wife. Yeah. Um, she's very supportive and understanding to a point, but then there's a point, you know, and she'll make a comment um, once in a while to remind me that, you know, I need to do this or I missed that or I should have been here when I was in the studio or, or painting someplace instead. And, you know, that's that's part of the balance of being in a good marriage. And, you know, she's put up with me for 31 years now. And, you know, it just comes with the territory when you marry an artist, I guess. I guess. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking a good analogy is like you feel like an ER doctor and you just have to stabilize the patient before you can go home. That's just get a good him, way to put Just get them stabilized. So then you can sleep knowing they'll still be alive in the morning. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just, just like it's like, like the old NASH TV show, you know, just meatball <laughs> surgery in the studio and just get them stabilized so that they'll uh, still be alive in the morning when you can come back and, you know, finish up what you need to finish yep. up. But yeah, that's a challenge. It is. Okay. So I want to focus on uh, your figurative stuff now. Because okay. you, and, and this one right here, by the way, uh -huh. uh, it's not in here. It's not, the, the one on no. the cover is not here. And I was looking for a right. red dot on it, and it's not even listed. So what's the deal? Is that one sold? It's actually, no, it's just sitting in the studio. Okay, um, we got to talk after the thing, cause after the podcast, because I freaking love this painting. I oh, love thanks. this painting. My gosh. It's a 12 by 12. Well, um, perfect. Cause I have a little house. <laughs> this, so this, this lady is a friend of my wife's. Um, we used to go to a, a church together and I actually hired her to model for me. I was going to do uh, a mammy kind of Aunt Jemima kind of character. Um, so I was, was going to paint her black and she was going to be kind of like, you know, the old uh, plantation um, houseworker figure. And when we put that scarf on her head, mm -hmm. she suddenly turned into a, a Russian domestic. And I thought, okay, whoa, stop everything. Forget it. I'm going to do this now. And so um, she modeled for several paintings I did like that. I did a, a whole series of those. Yeah, they're all right here. I've sold most of them but they don't fit within any of the galleries or the shows I'm doing these days. So I haven't done any more of her. And actually she's, she lost a lot of weight and she cut her hair and she looks completely different. So, I mean, I wouldn't even be able to paint her again like that, but yeah, she was so full of paint. Man. Yeah. Those are incredible. So tell me about, your how you got into the western art i'm gonna go i'm gonna back up again i did want to focus on that figure because i absolutely love it but how did you end up in this genre of western painting so um just kind of on a whim one day i decided to do uh, a cowboy i think i, I came across some photo, old photo reference of a guy and i you know changed him quite a bit but I just did a little, uh, I think it was a, uh, maybe a 10 by 10 of a cowboy smoking a cigarette. And I posted it online and, you know, on social media. And my aunt uh, saw it, one of my aunts who lives in California, and she's, she's very well-to-do. And she's, her and her husband had collected a lot of art in the 80s. They were collecting a lot of 
abstract art. But um, but she was you know wanted to be supportive and asked me if she could buy it, and I said yeah. You know, so I sold it to her. Well, right after that happened, um, Maxwell Alexander Gallery called me and said they saw it on online and asked me or invited me to be in their um, small work show, which they often invite guest artists to be a part of. And so I thought, oh, oh yeah, I'd love to be in that show. And um, so I, I told him that painting was already sold. And he said, well, do you have anything else? And I said, yeah, I've got other stuff. <laughs> um, let me get back to you. You know, of course, I had nothing. I just got to take a picture phone. of it. <laughs> I got off the phone and I took an old illustration I did of this yeah. bandito guy smoking a cigar. And I repainted it as a nocturne and, you know, changed some stuff on it. And I made it into um, a, a little, you know, eight by 10 painting. And it, to my surprise, it came out really well. I was really happy with it. And I was happy to call Bo at Maxwell Alexander and say, yeah, I've got a painting, you know, put in the show. And the funny thing about that is it, it started this domino effect because I, I thought, well, now I'm in this, you know, I have this opportunity. I've got a foot in the door here with this small work show in a, in a big time, you know, popular gallery with, with a bunch of artists I admire. And so I better step up my frames because um, I've been using these cheap frames, you know, for my, my fine art up to that point. And I thought if to be in this show, I got to have a really nice hand carved gold leaf, real gold, you know, frame. And so, um, since the gallery is in LA, I contacted Mayan Olson framers down in Orange County where I grew up. And I sent the painting down to them and they called me up the next day you know, after it arrived. And they said, um, or he said, Phil Olson, one of the owners, he said, I love this painting. I have to have it. Will you sell it to me? And I said, well, it's going into a show at Maxwell Alexander, but yeah, I'll sell it to you. And then I thought, you know, this would be a good move. I'll sell it to Phil as long as he agrees to put it, let it sit in the show for the month. And I'll give the commission cut to Maxwell Alexander, even though I sold it. I thought that'd be a good move. And so Bo was happy to do that. And then he said, well, great, you know, but because it's sold, you have another piece you want to put in. And so I came up with another one and that got in the, you know, he put that in the show and it sold. And, and then he kept doing that, asking me, you know, he was doing a remote show in Santa Fe and asked if I had something to put in there. So I gave him a piece. And after like six times of this, I said, so, so am I in the gallery now? And he said, oh yeah, yeah, you're in the gallery. We just, we haven't put you on the website yet. Sorry. Well, you know, we're going to do that. And so that's how I got into that gallery. And um, it just kind of kickstarted me into the Western thing. And I found that I really like the genre because I think because it related to the plain air stuff I was doing so much, but also integrated the the my interest in figurative art by having obviously the cowboy or an Indian in a scene, but largely landscape. And then the whole Western genre is pretty much all organic material anyway. So you got people, you got horses, you got leather, you got the outdoor setting. So um, it was, it was capitalizing on subject matter I was already interested in, but just now focusing it into the Western arena. And um, so it wasn't like I jumped on a bandwagon of something that was popular. It was 
just a, a quick organic route to what I discovered was really what I want to do. Yeah, so that was the that's a great story, but it is popular, man. Oh man. Yeah, Western yes, art this is, is the first huge time. right now. It's it's actually the first time I feel like I wasn't late to the party. Like with the plain air thing, when I met Tim and and Steve Houston, you know, the plain air painters of America had been around since I think the late '80s, and they'd already peaked. Or plain air, you know, with the higher caliber of painters had already really peaked in like the mid to late '90s, and here I was just starting to learn about it, and so now i feel like i'm i'm in a, a great gallery and a great group of of artists that are doing the western genre and and it's helped open doors you know being in this gallery and um you know it's opened doors to get into some of the museum shows and so i finally feel like i've i've gotten to into the right genre that i'm comfortable and happy you know have a passion at doing at the right time before it's peaked or before it's burned out you know because all of these things, all of these subjects seem to have a lifespan. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the process here. Are you, are you making up the landscape and, and then putting in your figures from reference? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, you know, obviously, of course with, uh, the trial and error happening mostly in the study phase. So I did a couple small studies of this. Um, but I shot, uh, let's see this guy. I think this was from a photo shoot I did in Arizona for the writer. And, you know, I added, I changed the hat on him. I changed the blanket. Um, you know, some of the subtleties I changed, but the, the, the core shape of the horse and the rider are from photo reference that I shot. And then you know, I make up the rest of the background to match the, the, the angle of light and shadow that were cast on the, the original su subject that I shot in the photo shoot. Man. That's the fun part I have with these is that all I can manipulate the reference, whether it's from life directly or from photo shoot, um, enough and stylize it enough to integrate it into a completely made up background that is based in real life because it's it's always based in either memory or um sketches and studies i did on site in places like new mexico or southern california or arizona hmm. how much does your improvising and your made up landscapes influence your plain air painting because you you stated that your plain air painting clearly influences your made up ones but do you then yeah. go back when you do plain air and find yourself improvising more because of all your experimentation in the studio yes and i and i would say also that that's kind of the negative flip side to um stylizing and making things up is that it gets in the way of when I go out. See, when I go out to plain air paint, what I really should be doing is learning by, um, you know, trying to 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 copy or um, absorb real time, real life information from nature, and be more exact about that, rather than rushing through a painting and relying on 
stylization and imagination. Um, when I do that too much, then I'm really kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ruining the, the point of being out there. You know, mm. I'm, I'm supposed to be learning from nature, not taking advantage of my drawing skills or my stylization. Um, I'd rather learn and try and copy nature more and then bring that, that experience back to the studio and then elaborate on that later in another painting. But I find myself these days when I go out and play an air paint, I sometimes rely on things I've made up before, um, you know, still influenced, of course, by what I'm looking at. Right. But uh, sometimes it becomes a mishmash of two things. And when I get back and I look at it at home, I think, you know, I really should have done what, you know, uh, the next artist did, which was, uh, you know, took a little more academic approach to this and learned a little more than than I did. You know, I should have taken more advantage. It doesn't happen every time that way, but sometimes it gets in the way of what you what you know gets in the way of what you're supposed to be learning. Mm. Might be the way to put it. But that's that would only be a negative if you see plain air painting as. Um, a, a simply an exercise to improve your education. But what if you saw plein air painting as a means of making more art? Yeah, and I do. It's a combination of both things. I think what I'm what I'm referring to are the times that I've relied too much on making things up. In fact, I was in a I was in a plein air show one time, and there was this other this other uh, artist, this other gal that I was out painting with. And she made this comment because we were talking about some aspect of painting and she looked at me and she said, yeah, but you just make it up. And I took it as a slight, you know, it was kind of a, a, a zinger, you know, like <laughs> you know, what, that, that wasn't a compliment. That was like, you're just, you're just making things up instead of working hard like me to actually follow what nature is telling me, you know, and take, take my cues from, from life. And I had to tell her, well, no, that's not true. I mean, yeah, some things I make up, um, but I think what you're what you're referring to are the the times when I elaborate on something and utilize my imagination. And really, that's the higher calling of an artist. I think you know the the artist that goes out and paints exactly what they see, the way they the way it is, um, you know, like a like a uh, you know a hyper realist or something nothing wrong with that and you know i've enjoyed and appreciated that kind of work through the years but the artist who brings more imagination and more originality to the table combining that with what they're seeing from life um i think makes for a more interesting picture in the end and that's what i want to see and i think that's also part of what we were talking about earlier about um having our own voice is um you know putting whatever percentage or ratio of our own thoughts, our own, you know, insight, our own soul into a painting or a picture that we're building off of um, an actual real life scene or a real person that we're painting from life. I think it's a combination that, that you know, is the perfect, comes up, hopefully if it's a successful painting, um, you know, eventually results in, in the, just the right formula to make a, you know, a successful painting. Mm. All right. Let me look at 
couple more of your paintings, and then we're going to wrap up here. We're getting close to two hours, so I want to let you get back to work. Goes fast. Yeah, I know. It's, a, it's been a great conversation. So here's another one that, again, like it, your bravery in these dark, dark clouds. <laughs> it works. It's so beautiful, though, and it works. So Happy I, accident. Is it? Was that a happy accident? Yeah, I did a... I did an acrylic study. The my favorite part of this painting is the um, the center, just just left to the center of those clouds, the purple and green right there. Mm -hmm. uh, I I'm sure that I intended those shadows to be darker in my study, but for whatever reason, I just washed them in, and, and the 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 value was just dark enough to indicate a shadow there, but it was light enough to indicate a lot of atmosphere between the bulk of the cloud that's causing the shadow and the low sun in the sky that would obviously, you know, create a diffused, uh, weaker shadow. And it was just by accident because I made up that whole sky scene. Yeah. In fact, everything, the riders and the horses. And it worked so well in the in the study that I just replicated it, you know, changed it slightly in the finished painting. But that's a perfect example of a happy accident. I am just not a good enough painter to formulate that in my head ahead of time and then paint it exactly how I imagined. <laughs> you're it. way too humble, but you're a good enough artist that's to know to know when it's right. To know when it's right, though, because you you well, let thank God I have alone. yeah. At least at least I can recognize when something's working. Right, um, but. When you ask how I got there, it was often by accident more than deliberately. Huh. Okay, so, you know, I never asked you my second question a while back when we got into that, our whole OCD personality trait that we share. <laughs> the second question I wanted to ask you about your process is when you are having this struggle to, you know, it was that long kind of like a kind of uh pointy cloud, that dark pointy cloud, I said, look like stone. We were talking about that. When you are having that struggle, do you find that that struggle actually helps the quality of the painting? Because what I'm seeing in your painting is that you're building up lots of layers and getting a lot yeah. of history in the painting. It's not like these aren't all a prima. So no. is the struggle actually serving you as the artist in that it's giving it you lots of history? It is. is As long as the end result is, if I'm satisfied with the end result, it it's actually a, a, a more beneficial route to go if it included a lot of search and destroy and scrape and rebuild and frustration and all that. I mean, I don't, I don't relish that at all. It's uncomfortable, you know, but if it, if it all just came off easy i don't think i would feel genuine about it enough i don't you know i wouldn't be happy to show a painting even a successful painting if it just flowed off my fingertips i mean i, I just i don't have those skills to begin with but i i am appreciative yeah of the struggle and um the, the part i don't like is that sometimes it's i spend too much time on a painting mm -hmm. and don't like that but um yeah, I think I can't get to where I want to be. Just like when I go out and play an air paint, um, those are essentially all the Prima paintings most of the time. But 
I, I, I'm happier with my paintings that are the next generation of those plein air paintings where I have time to let the paint tack up overnight or for a day or two and then come back and get some effects that I cannot get a la prima. Yeah. There's some things you simply cannot do a la prima that you can do when you have a little more time in the studio. Um, and vice versa, you can't work on a painting for a week and have the same, you know, energy that you can only get from an a la prima painting in, a, in an hour outdoors. Right. It's, it's two different camps, but, but yeah, to answer the question, it absolutely benefits the painting to go through those struggles of failure and then rebuilding without having to trash the canvas entirely, which I've done many times. But, um, and the other fun thing about that too, is to paint, repaint over a failed painting where you have that, you already have a jumping off point. You've got the springboard of abstract shapes and scraped passages that are not making sense, but you lay a little bit of color on top, some broken color, and suddenly, you know, some interesting things start to vibrate and, you know, that you wouldn't get starting off with a free, you know, a, a clean, fresh canvas. Hmm. I like doing that. Hmm. Especially outdoors when you're playing air painting, it's fun to, to start a new painting on an old canvas that's you've abandoned just because it's, you've obliterated the white, the blankness of it. And there's, there's just some things that I'll let stand and come through from an old failed painting on a new fresh painting. And they always, it's always a benefit to the the final product. And I like it. I got to start saving my duds. I've been either wiping them off or throwing them away. Well, I found that that's another thing. Maybe this is part of the OCD thing is that um, if a painting is so bad, um, I cannot live with it. I will not let it sit in the corner of my studio. It either gets painted over right away, scraped off, or thrown out. Um, <laughs> if it has some merit to it, or it has some part that's that's redeemable, then I'll keep it with the idea in mind that I'm going to, you know, reserve, you know, preserve that one area and then finish, you know, redo the rest of it. Or I will use that as like what I was saying is you know, as the jumping off point for an entirely different composition and just paint over it, but capitalize on some of those shapes that I like. That's a, that's a real frustrating thing when you have a painting that fails, but like 18% of it is like just awesome. You just, you're in love with that part, but you know, you can't show it to anybody now because the rest of it sucks. Yeah. So yeah. I'm with you on this one too. It's like it having a bad a painting that's that bad sitting in your studio. It's like inviting a little troll into your studio that just tells you you suck yeah. all day long while you're painting. Like you suck, oh, you yeah, suck. It's very naggy. It's very naggy. <laughs> you got, yeah, you, to you just got to get rid of it. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. So my final question for you is: if you could give one piece of advice to aspiring artists that you wish you had, what would it be? Oh. Let me think a minute. I've I've fantasized about this. You know, if if I could go back in time and talk to my younger self, and you know, I'd avoid a lot of things, a lot of old girlfriends and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Let's um, keep it about art. But as far I know, as far as art goes, <laughs> um, boy, I would. I think I would alleviate their. Um, 
if I was talking to a younger artist who had a real passion, as all young artists should, you know, if you're that interested, you, sh you should have a real passion about what you want to do and what you want to say as, a, as an artist, as a painter or sculptor or what have you. Um, I would try to alleviate their fears about will I will I be successful? Will I make it? Will you know? Is this is this um, going to work out? And tell them that you look. You have a passion. You have a fire burning inside of you. Um, this is you know this is your calling to do this to pursue this as um, as not only a livelihood but um, your you know your 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 joy in life is going to come from creating art, your creative soul. And um, I would try and dissuade them from having fears about not being able to do it or listening to other voices that are telling them, well, you know, you, you better have a backup plan, you know, like a whole other career because they maybe do this on the side or do this at night or on the weekends or something and pursue something a little more traditional as a, a means of income. Um, I can only tell them from my own experience and and say that you know it's not easy. It's it can be really rough at times, but it's so rewarding to follow your passion, you know, to pursue those goals. And don't be persuaded by the economy. Don't be persuaded by the news. Don't don't even listen to the news. Don't be persuaded by naysayers. You know, follow your heart and and just go for it. And and if you can get solid instruction early on. Um, I can speak to that by experience because I didn't. And I think that prolonged some things that I had to learn the hard way. Um, get a good education, but but stay true to yourself and really just follow that passion and don't let anybody tell you what you can't do. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. It's been a real honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate oh, yeah. the conversation. Yeah, I've never had anybody ask me such insightful questions. It's, I guess it has to be another artist. When you talk to magazines, it's usually it's an editor or somebody who's not a working artist. So you don't get those kind of questions. So I appreciate that. It's yeah, fun. my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.